Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Julia Salabank about her book Attitudes to Endangered Languages, a book that explores some of the sociological aspects of language revitalization. We talk particularly about the indigenous languages of the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man and consider how language revitalization programs raise issues of language ownership, cultural identity and attitudes to language change. I'm delighted to welcome Julia Salabank from SOAS University of London to talk about her new book Attitudes to Endangered Languages in which she discusses the social aspects of language revitalization, with particular reference to Guernsey, Jersey and the Isle of Man. Julia, how did you become interested in this topic? I've been interested particularly in Guernsey for a long time. Well, my, mo- my mother comes from Guernsey, um, and I've always been fascinated in the language. We went there a lot when I was young, and that was really my, my kind of inroad into endangered languages. And as soon as I started saying that I was interested in studying the language, I got some interesting reactions, let's say, from members of my family. And that got me immediately interested in the attitudes and ideological aspects of of language endangerment, language revitalization. And then, um, yeah, I decided to broaden my approach, compare um, what was going on there with other places. Your particular focus is on the uh, the languages of Jersey, Guernsey, and the Isle of Man. Um, I wonder if you could give us a little sketch of the of the linguistic situation in those places. These are three small islands around the British Isles. Um, they've all they're all relatively similar in terms of size and population within within you know, a degree. They all, they all, well, for a start, they've all got indigenous languages or have had indigenous languages. The Isle of Man's language, Manx, some people say it died out. Other people would say there's there's been a continuum of, of, of people learning and speaking it. But certainly the last so-called native speaker or traditional speaker died in the 1970s. Um, well, even before then, there, there was a movement to try and revive Manx. But it's been particularly successful since the 1980s, 1990s. Manx is um, a Celtic language. It's it's very, quite closely related to Scottish Gaelic and and Irish um, Irish Gaelic, if you like. Um, and in fact, the, the the Manx word for 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 Manx is Gaelic, which is Gaelic or Gaelic. Whereas Channel Islands languages are varieties of Norman, as in Norman conquest. They were part of Normandy when Normandy invaded England in 1066. Jerie, the language of Jersey, and Genesee, the language of Guernsey, are really quite highly endangered in that they have now very few, very elderly, fluent native traditional speakers, and unfortunately have not been that successful yet in, in reviving the languages. So there are very few young people who have uh, learned the language effectively. Um, whereas in the Isle of Man, um, the language revitalization program has been relatively successful in that, for example, they've got a whole school with 70 kids learning everything through Manx and possibly about 100 or more other fluent speakers who've learned it in various ways. So, so my, my interest then um, became piqued by, by um, trying to look at what 
what one could learn from the commonalities and the differences, and particularly what the Channel Islands could learn from, from what the Isle of Man has been doing. I mean, one, one sort of striking difference uh, with this study versus others is that when we hear about so-called language death, it's very often in the context of marginalised communities of low socioeconomic status, mm. whereas that's not particularly the case here, is it? No, indeed, no. Um, these, these communities might be seen as, as, as fairly well off, or they are fairly well off by most people's standards. And that may, according to one of my colleagues, Gary Wilson, um, that's actually one of the factors in language vitalization, particularly in the Isle of Man, that the economic situation made it possible for people to just kind of start thinking about other things apart from just making a living. Um, if, that, if you like the factors, very often language shift is, is related to economic factors. People are motivated to learn a language which they perceive is better for them, better for their children, in particular in terms of education, getting a good job, um, making a better living, kind of forgetting that it's possible to add a language to your repertoire rather than uh, replace one by another. And that's kind of also kind of part of the whole sort of monolingual ideology that tends to dominate in Western Europe. Some people have likened this to, to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. People at the bottom of the hierarchy of needs are concerned with basic uh, survival, food, shelter, etc. Whereas higher up, they can get more interested in what is called self-actualization, um, identity factors, that kind of thing. Now, some of my colleagues find this quite insulting to members of endangered language communities, <laughs> kind of implication that, that just because you're poor, you can't think about your identity. Um, so, and, and, and it has also been pointed out that this is just a hypothesis that must have hierarchy of needs never actually been proven. But that's, that's just one theory that some people have put forward. Uh, you mentioned in that yeah. connection that it's quite often people of, uh, of middle class and upwards who are uh, especially interested in the revitalisation efforts that have been made. Yes and no. I think we, we can see people of all backgrounds interested in language revitalisation. I think, yeah, I think it's, it's perceived that way. Now, certainly that was, that, that's been one reaction that I've had. Oh, only, only intellectuals are interested in saving the language. Um, but it's a perception, I think, rather than necessarily a research finding again. Sure. Um, you mentioned that the language revitalisation efforts for Manx are somewhat further along uh, and have been something of a touchstone for language planning in Guernsey and Jersey, as I understand it. How do you feel that comparison has been used? How has that played out? Uh, in Jersey in particular, they have quite overtly referred to Manx revitalisation as something that's inspired them and actually gone to the Manx language revitalisation office, I'm not sure what stage it's been, uh, you know, back, back when it was first started, and got copies of their materials and translated them at the beginning to help teach area. But I think in more recent years, the inspiration has been more in terms of inspiration rather than actually looking at what makes the, the Manx revival so successful. And I think it is successful. I think it's one of the most successful I've actually seen anywhere in the world. Um, if you think about uh, the fact that they didn't have any any native speakers left in the 70s, but you know now they've got possibly 150-ish, two to 200 perhaps fluent or, or proficient, some people prefer to call it, um, speakers of Manx. You know, which is a remarkable turnaround, and and a lot to, a lot more people who know some and very positive attitudes towards Manx, and I think um, it's not just the other islands, but a lot of a lot of language revitalisation movements could learn a lot from from how Man of Man has gone about it.
But I think um, that there are things that people tend to forget. And one of the things they've forgotten is that the in the Isle of Man, they never didn't have speakers. The, I, I say in my book, there's this kind of rhetoric of continuity, but there was actually continuity in that there were always people who had learnt Manx from native speakers or from other speakers. So uh, adult learners, if you like, people who, who weren't dependent on, on, on language lessons um, for their fluency in the language. And those people back in the 70s and 80s provided um, a kind of core of, of language activists and, and language usage, which kept the language alive in, in what you might call the dark days, which I think are pretty imminent for, for Jersey and Guernsey, for their indigenous languages. And I think in that respect, it's quite worrying. But I recently realized that in Guernsey, there's probably only five people below the age of 60 who can speak the language well, to the extent that they can have an impromptu conversation on a variety of topics for, let's say, more than about 20 minutes on, you know, more than just the weather, for example, and possibly even fewer in Jersey. Um, and so I really think that, that, that adult language learning is really a vital intermediate step in, in, in keeping these languages alive. Um, an issue that surfaces time and again in your book is, is the difficulty, or if you like, the contested nature of how to use that expert knowledge. Uh -huh. um, could you discuss that a little? When you say that expert knowledge, do you mean of native speakers or what? Yes, native uh, or, or older, older fluent speakers who have, the, if you like, the claim mm -hmm. to direct transmission. Yes. It's more, the more contested seems to be how to, how to pass the language on or even whether to pass the language on. I, I've been looking since I wrote, since I wrote this book, since I published this book. I've been looking particularly at, at adult learners and and what they need. Several, quite a few, most of the people that I've talked to, if they've got somebody, with with, with some exceptions, I have to say, but quite a few of the people I've talked to have said that they would really love to have someone, an older person, particularly by definition. Um, all of the native fluent speakers of Jerry and Genesee are older. Um, and learners would really love to have people to talk to in the language. It's one of their main problems. They don't have enough input. They don't have enough opportunities to practice. But if they're lucky enough to find someone or to have a, a relative or a neighbor, for example, um, who speaks the language that they can go and talk to, the reaction that they often get is something like, oh, we don't say it like that, or oh, you never pronounce it like we do. and Learners uh, um, tend to find this off-putting, and they can get a bit demoralised because they they don't tend to get positive feedback from from native speakers uh, with regard to their their abilities. And frankly, there there are not a lot, as I said, of of, of proficient learners in Guernsey. Until recently, there's been no opportunity to to get beyond beginner level, um, but also because native speakers aren't used to teaching anyone to speak the language. It's a long time. 45 years probably since anyone had a, had, had a child and, and started to bring that child up in, in, in Genesee and people simply aren't used to anyone wanting to learn it. So there's a bit of sort of give and take needed on both sides. But there is also, I think, a bit of a possibly subconscious problem. People get worried about language change, by which they generally mean um, influence from English. They're not so worried about influence from French. We've turned this language ownership. Some other people talk about legitimacy of language. It's sort of sort of dichotomy that, on the one hand, people say they want more people to learn the language, 
Um, but on the other hand, they are worried about what those people might do with the language. And they kind of want to police it. And, we, and, and, and some people use the term language police, in fact. And, and they kind of forget that language change happens. And if, if, if people had carried on speaking and learning the language with their children, like in the Isle of Man, like it's actually happening in the Isle of Man, those kids would be busy trying to find ways of saying, he's like, and I'm like, in, in Jerry and Genesee, and they wouldn't be speaking like their grandparents. <laughs> yeah, um, do you feel that there's, uh, there's been a tendency to, to underestimate this sort of tension between the, between the desire to have a language that, that is living going forward? Uh, and to maintain this this kind of purism, do you think that's something that people trying to do language revitalization have, if you like, rather um, optimistically overlooked? Yes and no. I mean, it's in some, some people are aware of it, and in fact, uh, I think I'm not sure if I quote this report from one of the language societies in Guernsey, the annual review. It says something like, "We're teaching a traditional form of a language, not a new form that some people want, seem to want to teach." Yeah, so some people are aware of this, and some people are actively opposed to language change. So yeah, um, uh, what, 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 what kind of worries me is that learners are the future of the language, of any, of any endangered language, and I don't think enough attention has been paid uh, both to the differences between learning a small language and a big language, and also if like giving, giving young people, giving learners a voice in language policy, which until recently hasn't really happened particularly in Guernsey, more in Jersey. I think they, they've got over that hump better. Do you feel that there's a, a difference between uh, the situation in the, in the Isle of Man and in Jersey and Guernsey, insofar as in the Isle of Man there's only one um, roof language, as you describe it, namely English, whereas in Guernsey and Jersey the, mm. the languages are pulled between these two um, rather powerful global languages that influence them? Mm. There is, of course, a Celtic continuum in the Isle of Man. Um, um, in terms of policy, they have learned a lot from Ireland, Wales, um, Scotland to a certain extent. Scotland is, is kind of less far, I think, in language revitalization. Um, and there are some Celtic scholars who I think would rather that Manx wasn't spelt in this funny way and kind of would remain part of a Celtic continuum. But as I say, it's not such an issue there, I don't think. I think people in the Isle of Man are, are, are quite uh, kind of firm in, in seeing Manx as... as, as a, a definite language, whereas I think there's, a, there's less self-confidence in that respect in, in Jersey and Guernsey because for so long it was seen as a substandard dialect of French. Linguistically, um, well, some people, I think some linguists would still call it a, a dialect of French. And in fact, I'm at the moment having a dialogue with, with Ethnologue, which you may, may or may not know. It's a kind of big list of listing of languages, the major listing of languages that, that, that um, most people refer to when they first want to have some information about a language. And at the moment, they're listing Jerry and Genesee under French. And there have, there have been moves to change that status because Manx is listed separately. Although, arguably, you could say there's at least as much mutual intelligibility between Irish and Manx as there is between Jerry and Genesier. I can understand some Irish because I can understand some Manx, for example. Whereas there was another researcher, Harry Thompson, did some research in the 90s um, between speakers of French and Genesier and discovered only about 25% mutual intelligibility in, in for oral recordings. But you know, facts don't don't often you know don't get in the way of a good story or a good ideology. 
a lot of people have this idea that French is the correct way of writing Genesee. And in, in, as I said, in, in, well, you know, in the 19th century, um, it was seen as, as the written form. Particularly some of the older people have this sort of ideology of, of, of deficit uh, about Géry and Genesee. Uh, yeah, and still see them as, as less valid forms of French. Um, and people will say things like, oh, we haven't got words for this, so we haven't got words for that. It's an earthy language, um, which is great. And there's a, there's a lot of joke and joking in Genesier. But people don't see the possibility of changing that status of of making up or, or re- repurposing or agreeing on on terms for modern things, for for expanding the domains of, of use of of, of Genesee and Jerie. Uh, whereas Manx is used for all kinds of things. Um, you, you go to meetings of people involved in. I went to a meeting of um, a, a committee on on broadcasting in in, in Manx revitalisation, and the whole meeting was held in Manx. Um, probably less English words than you get in the average Welsh conversation. If if you if you listen to Welsh TV, if if you look at stuff uh, written online in Welsh, there's a lot of English words in there actually and very often there'll be words for things like technological stuff but in Manx they don't do that so much and, they, and I think there's a deliberate attempt to, to expand the domains of, of the languages that some people are trying to do particularly in Jersey if you look at the, the Jersey language website, um, office's website or blog in fact there, very often you'll see um, lists of whole lists of words to do with new concepts Oh, business, for example, meetings, environment, whatever, um, whatever's in the news. But at the moment, there's nothing agreed in that respect in, in Genesee. There's only kind of unofficial, private, between individuals attempts to, to expand the language use. And as you discuss, in the absence of such, um, such attempts, there's a danger, mm-hmm. or there's a possibility, perhaps I shouldn't say danger, that the language can get associated with, if you like, a purely heritage function. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. That that that's very much the case in Guernsey. I think um, it's very much associated with, with folkloric kind of songs and dances and stuff. How do you uh, perceive the prospects for for if you like going beyond that in the future? Is there, so to speak, a potential of a critical mass to to keep the language alive um, if the right conditions are in place? I think it's something we have to work for. Um, this is why I've been I'm doing this research on, on what might be needed to, to help more young adult, adults and young adults to become involved and, and, and to become more fluent in the language. Um, as I said, I think it's necessary to have a kind of core of people who are really committed to keeping the language alive by actually using it. They all need to be able to speak about things they want to speak about in, in their daily lives if, if it's really going to go anywhere. I mean, this seems to chime with an issue you raise more generally about the success criteria for attempts in language revitalization. Uh-huh. Mm. Um, it's my impression that although you don't want to be overtly critical of, of <laughs> so to speak, very well-meaning attempts in, in this area, that uh, people are maybe overly optimistic about what is achieved, uh, if you like, under the rubric of uh, awareness raising and so on, and that these these efforts tend mm. to have rather short-term consequences in a lot of cases unless some tipping point mm-hmm. is reached. Is that, is that a fair representation of the situation? Possibly. It's it's quite possible there's some kind of pendulum swing in terms of attitudes. And I, it, it's it's very important to raise awareness. It's very important to improve attitudes. That, that's part of the problem with the attitude towards French in, in the Channel Islands um, and the, the attitude that, that Genesee and Jiri 
have been substandard varieties of French. And I think there's more awareness and pride, um, particularly among politicians, that, that the islands have their own languages. And this is very much the case in the Isle of Man. It's, that's an, um, uh, one, an, another of their major achievements, you know, kind of get most of the politicians on board. But politicians don't tend to take it any further than that, as you say. Having a language is enough um, for political distinctiveness. And it doesn't really matter whether it's folklorized or whether it's actually used fluently by lots of people. I mean, this is my own ideology, as I say, the book comes out here that, that I think to have a heritage or to have a, a language, a local language, it's got to be a living language. Um, it's, it's not much point in having a language that's just a few words in greetings, a, a few signposts that you know, look quaint, um, a few songs and dances. And you know, and people don't realise. Um, people think all you need is English nowadays. Everyone speaks English, and because most people are monolingual in English, they they don't realise partly the sheer joy of of speaking your heritage language or or a, a private language, even a secret language, uh, of of having a language that not everyone understands. That you can make comments about people, in, for example. And, and and that's the kind of a motivation I've actually found among among young people, teenagers. Um, they say things like, "Oh, it would be cool to have our own language, you know, a secret language of our own." And, and, and young people aren't necessarily motivated by dressing up in old costumes. There are an increasing number of people, young people, particularly school children, who take part in the main. Um, language festival in Guernsey, cultural festival, the Eisteddfod, which is taken from the Welsh. But they don't necessarily get involved in, uh, well, all, it, all they do really is, is, is learn poems off by heart and, and read them out. At the moment, it hasn't gone beyond that. And they certainly haven't got involved in, in dressing up in old costumes and stuff. Yeah. Mm. I suppose it, it does get to the question of, of what it means to, to have the language, if mm, you like, as yes, part of yes. cultural heritage, whose who's it is and, and what use is mm. to be made of it. Mm. You yes, discussed... Indeed. But the rather mixed feelings, these, uh, for example, the idea of appropriation of, of um, little bits of little fragments of the language as some kind of uh, badge of identity, in mm. perhaps a rather inauthentic way. I mean, how, how, do, how do you feel about that? Oh, that word authentic or inauthentic, um, you know, people use it um, in all kinds of ways and they all have their own meanings for it. And um, for some people, authentic means kind of purist, which means um, sort of towards the French often in, in Guernsey. For me, authentic means what people actually do with language. And trouble with, with researching that is what you sometimes find is not what, what people think they do. So we'll find things like language change, language variation, people not even necessarily realizing the way they say things. And that can conflict with how people think they use, it, use the language and how people think they should use the language. I don't think there's anything wrong in people using language as a badge of identity, as long as that doesn't stop other people actually using it the way they want to. I think there's, there's space for people to do all kinds of things with language. And if you want to sing and dance, that's fine, no problem. Um, I enjoy singing, but you wouldn't want to hear me. I think a bit of tolerance is, would be a good idea. I suppose, I mean, is there a question of respect in there, or do you feel that that's, I mean, is, is that not something that would be a problem? People haven't used that word, but yeah, I guess, I guess so, perhaps, yes. I, I think I prefer the word tolerance rather than respect. Yeah, tolerance, for example, for, for young people and the way they might, they might want to use language. Yeah, tolerance in different people's approaches to language revitalization and language documentation. 
not just thinking that the way you do it is is the only way. Sure. I'd like, in, in the light of that, to ask a question. So this is a very general question, perhaps not a very fair one, but it seems to me that the the assumption is, I think, correctly that if you uh, if you revitalise the language, if you uh, make it available, make it actually used by new generations of speakers, then mm. because of language contact, among other things, and because of technological change, that there's likely to be very rapid. Uh, change in the language uh, under one influence or another. The question is essentially what what exactly what exactly are you saving, or does that not does that not matter? To put it another way, I mean the purists have a very clear it seems they have a very mm. clear idea of what it is they want to want to save. They want, if you like, to save some of the past is how I think you maybe characterise mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in this other case, you're you're creating a new means of expression in some in some mm. sense. Is that well? Yes, in a way, both of those are myths. The language of the past is is often a nostalgic view, which doesn't necessarily correlate with actually the reality of how the language is or what even was used. It's as I said, it's 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 often a sort of smartening up um, and Frenchification of of how the language is actually used. If you look at some some of the materials that have been made, you you can see that in some of them. But also. The thing is, that even if you didn't revitalise the language, it would change. Um, in other contexts, it's been found that endangered languages change faster than healthy languages, um, which is a kind of oxy- it's, it's, got, it's interesting because, on the other hand, a language that doesn't change is truly dead. You know, once once there are no speakers at all, and it's all it is is if you, if you if you've got some recordings, they're in a museum somewhere. And that is, is is your kind of preserved language in a in a jar rather than your preserved language as a, as a living language. So you're not going to stop a language changing, I'm afraid, unless you just have it in the jar. And um, you know, this is why I, I worry that, that that some people um, and people some people have said overtly that you know that they're more worried about language change than about language death. And 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 you know, it won't be the language that we know. Um, is, is a quote I've used quite a lot. But it won't be the language that anyone knows if if you don't let people pick it up and run with it. You know, there there is a worry that that it will change out of all recognition. That, um, that if if you've got more and more anglicised terms, what what old people tend to do if when they talk about new things such as bathrooms and uh, televisions, refrigerators and things, they'll use those words in English rather than create a genesee term. And what some people would rather do is re- to create a local language term for those things so they can talk about them in their own language and to actually use and to research the ways that the language has always or traditionally formed new terms um, so that they can actually do it that in a reconstituted authentic way, if you like, because you know this is another another use of the word authentic. People tend to associate language change with language decline, um, which is another kind of highly charged term. And, and actually, you can, uh, and there's, there's another lady, Claire Ferguson, that has probably quoted in the book that who's recently in the last few years done a, a PhD on language change in Genesee and, and, and she herself says that you can see differences in how the so-called younger, i.e. for instance 60 year olds speak um, and, and how the, the 80, 90 year olds speak. Um, again, that's the kind of thing that purists don't want to know, don't want to recognise. But within a very few years, those 60 year olds, 70 year olds will be 
the language authorities because the older speakers won't be there anymore. And I can, you know, give you chapter and verse on on particular ac aspects of the language that are changing in the usage of those so-called younger speakers. Things like um, simplification or regularization of verb forms, of plural forms, deconstruction of some elided forms, that kind of thing. And of course, you can also see change in in the usage of of people who are learning, and that's inevitable too. And you see that in Manx as well, um, changes in pronunciation. But even you can you can you can also see that in in the semi speakers who are the current sixty seventy year old speakers of of Genesee and Jerry, they have a different accent to the older speakers. There, that's very very clear. Learners don't necessarily notice some of the differences in, in vowel length, for example, between plurals and singulars, um, which is a feature of Genesee. Um, and that kind of thing will change, um, but languages do change. And, and you can look at recordings of English and you can see changes in accent, changing in usage. It's still English. It's still called English. There's a, a, a linguist who's been looking at uh, modern Hebrew and so it, and obviously it's it's really quite different. Hebrew was supposed to be the big success story of language revitalization, but the Hebrew that's spoken nowadays is very different from what was spoken in the Bible times. But it's still called Hebrew. There are people who claim it shouldn't be called Hebrew because it's so different. But yeah, any any kind of language revitalization, language revival involves a certain reimagining, re reconstitution of the language. This is a case of Cornish as well. Um, which is, is being revived after about, well, some people say 200 years, but they were probably speakers about 50, 70 years ago who were kind of semi-speakers. It seems to me that, I mean, your book reflects a very high level of awareness of the fact that there are these, these competing interests or competing perceptions mm. among various different uh, groups within mm. the speech community. Uh, and that they might have conflicting interests. Now, it, it, you mentioned, I think, the Bob at some point talking about the the responsibility to promote accurate information. That is to say, mm. in some sense, we're under an, under an obligation as, as scientists to point out yeah. that this change is existing. So mm. the possibility mm. of fossilizing or crystallizing the language in some earlier stage of development has already has already passed. That so that cannot be achieved. Mm. Uh, do you feel that? that in some, when someone politicizes you, when, when um, mm. <laughs> if you like confronting with, confronting or arguing with the the um, positions of established yeah. authorities within the within mm. the community. Yeah, some people have suggested that the linguists could act as arbiters between um, kind of different uh, factions in in language communities, and this is very common that there are different factions in small language communities, not just in these islands. But as I said, the very fact that as a linguist one is finding evidence of, of ongoing language change kind of makes one be perceived uh, as not as not unbiased, let's say. It's almost a case of shoot the messenger. So I think you know, things have gone beyond me see, being seen as an impartial observer. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm definitely seen as on the side of... of we we call it a, a dynamic um, versus static view of language, and I'm definitely, as as, as you can see, on on the kind of have worth more dynamic view of language myself. Not not all linguists do. Um, some linguists basically want to kind of find out how language was spoken in its pure state and parcel that up and put it in a box. Um, but they tend to be not so interested in language vitalization.
I'm very much interested in linguistics, if you like, in the service of language communities. And, and, and communities is, is often used in a, in a quite totalizing way, in, in a kind of quite overused, abused in, in, in linguistics. And, and many, most even possibly traditional communities are not necessarily terrifically democratic. So there are people who have prestige, kudos in the community, who, who yeah, have, have, have influence and people respect a lot what they will say. It's, it's just that if, they, if they're elders, then you know, they're, they're not necessarily going to be around forever. Um, and really, I think that if the language is going to survive, that baton needs to be passed on to people who are keen on using it and keeping it going in, in well, I say in whatever form, but um, I think you know, there, there is a limit beyond which a language becomes something else. But then again, that's not necessarily for me to say. You know, I, I can't make a decision on how the language should be in the future, and I don't think anyone else can as well. Yeah, I was I was going to ask also whether you felt you were given these given these competing interests, mm-hmm. given this rather complex dynamic, whether uh, whether you felt limited in what you what you can do as a to some extent an outsider, albeit one with a with a personal mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. connection. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Or whether whether you really feel that the, just as a practicality that, that your advocacy is limited in its effect because you're battling certain rather entrenched positions. Yeah, I would love to be able to spend longer in Guernsey and and set up um, what is called a master apprentice program. Although some of my colleagues there feel that it's getting a bit late for that. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the master apprentice concept um, comes from North America. Um, basically, you, you, you put together a learner or, or semi-speaker, someone who wants to become more fluent with someone who is more fluent. Um, you provide them with a certain amount of training um, to avoid the kind of problems that I mentioned earlier between learners and, and fluent speakers. And ideally, they spend a lot of time together, like 20, 10 to 20 hours a week or more even. And the older person becomes the language mentor and the younger person often becomes the language teacher in due course. And I would love to set up something like that in Guernsey. Um, but as I say, some of my colleagues feel that, that the situation has, has got, in terms of, of, of the number of, of older speakers, people who are, who are dying each week, you can see them in, 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 the, in the newspaper. It's kind of a bit late for that. But yes, you're right. There's a limit to what I could do from, I mean, obviously I've got, I've got friends and colleagues in Guernsey who are working there, but, but you know, they, they too are just individuals. Um, it's, it would be nice if, if, there were, if there was a bigger group of people but uh, yeah, that's something we're working towards. There are people who are learning. There are people who are, who are getting getting quite good. Um, a, a small group of learners, and yes, and, and yes, it's great to to see that. Turning back to the question of, of language and culture, you discuss at various points. Um, you discuss the question of how people coming in from outside in all these communities uh, relate to the language and the mm. culture. Do you feel that the so to speak the infusion of, of um, Fresh blood is, is a is a promising sign for the for the maintenance of these languages. I think I, I'm, I think anyone is welcome. This is something that Adrian Kane, the the Manx language officer, has said quite overtly. You know, some some people there say, "Oh well, these people are not locals." You know, um, you know, what do they matter? But um, he said, you know, anyone that's interested in language is welcome. From his point of view, he'd rather have an enthusiastic newcomer than someone who is, he says, you know, kind of as as, as Manx as the hills, um, who's got quite negative attitudes towards the language. Which there are still some people like that um, in in all these islands in every, every place. 
there are both types um, learning all, all of these languages, uh, and in fact, quite, you know, some some of the the most prominent people involved in language vitalization are incomers, and 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 people have all sorts of, of motivations. For a lot of people, it is because they have. Um, family members, grandparents, um, neighbours, even who speak the language and have become fascinated by it. But in other cases, it's it's simply people who have come in and, and seem to just got to connect with something in in, in the local culture and, and and the local language and, and and really want to learn it. Is that um, something you feel is is bound up or is special with the um, condition as you as you said islandness for these languages? Do you feel that? that mm. um, Promotes that, that yes, yes, and no. Um, I think it's true of other places as well that aren't necessarily islands. You can get kind of language islands. You can get people being parochial in the matter of whether they've got a, a, a sea around them or not. Jersey and Guernsey, any island man as well. I mean, they all have the advantage of, of being very beautiful places, and people people want to go there for that reason, if, if nothing else. I mean, there are a lot of people who go to all of these islands simply as tax exiles and, and actually don't have much contact with the with the local culture or, or society at all. But you do get a few who who are, you know not not just tax exiles who. Yeah, really want to get interested in in local culture and local society, and yeah, for some some of them, language is, is part of that. I'd like to then ask, so as a more general question, picking up a book titled "Attitudes to Endangered Languages," it's it's in some sense quite uh-huh. a surprise, unless you've read the blurb, but it's uh, that it deals with languages that, at least from my geographic my geographical sense, are, are so close at hand, <laughs> and for all of us are, are you know, Western and and in these somewhat familiar locations. Mm-hmm. Um, how has the study of these informed your understanding or your work on um, language revitalization in other contexts which maybe don't have quite the well that don't have these circumstances yeah um you say you don't have these circumstances um on the, on the one hand uh, uh, as we were talking about earlier that there are economic resources um and, and, and degree of, of of well-being in these places on the other hand there is not a lot of funding particularly in Guernsey for language revitalization, there is more in the Isle of Man and some in Jersey. Well, in no respect would, 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 can, can you say that the language revitalization is over, overfunded, I think. So this is really still dependent on the goodwill of groups and individuals. Um, and I think that's the case everywhere. You've got to have commitment. Um, you've got to have a core, a core really of, of, of really committed individuals, like in the Isle of Man, that the, the young people, young parents who decided they were going to bring up their children in Manx and start a school of their own, and that is something that can be learned from other, for other, other places. Um, you know, I have been to other places and, and I've looked at particularly about language attitudes, um, and even somewhere as different as New Caledonia, which I, I think I mentioned briefly in, in the book, you get similar attitudes. You've got for the indigenous languages there, the particular place that I was in, a little village called Puebo, people who were quite concerned at the loss of both language and culture, traditional language and culture, but at the same time who criticise the language usage of younger people who tend to do more code switching, um, mixing languages, and also you know, whose language isn't, isn't the same as their, as their parents. And, and like in the places I've, I've, I've talked about, um, and you get this in other places too, one of my colleagues has, has talked about this with regard to revitalization of Occitan in southern France. You, on the one hand, you've got 
you know, people saying we want the young people to learn the languages, but if you criticize them when they do, they're going to turn around and say, oh, well, you know, if you don't, you don't like the way I'm speaking it, well, I might as well speak French or English or whatever the high language is, because at least I can do that without being criticized. Um, and this, I think, is what happened in Guernsey after the Second World War as well, when the young people came back from from um, being away for five years. Um, you know, a lot of them weren't too confident in in, in their one of their heritage languages. Yes, and, and got criticised and and sort of turned away from the language. Yeah, and and as I say, you can see similar attitudes in many places around the world, uh, um, you, and and many places uh, where there is language revitalisation, there is a bit of a tension between in some places like Basque country for example there's a unified kind of modern Basque which is being taught in schools and some of the older dialect speakers find that difficult to understand and vice versa and and that is a bit of a problem because if you're not learn, learning the language to connect with your roots where are you, you know what are you learning it for yeah so in some sense the uh, the opportunity to study these social dynamics in Guernsey or Jezreel or Man it is is a is a window into something that you think might be very much more general mm. and cross cultural. Mm. Possibly, yes. I hesitate to use the word cross cultural, and and I think you know you can't make broad generalisations. But um, most places I've been, you've got you've got similar dynamics going on, unfortunately. And 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 colleagues of mine talk about this kind of thing. I had a student come to talk to me ostensibly about. about Orthography, the way of the writing particular language she was studying in Pakistan, but it turned out that the problem was really to do with community community dynamics and who felt they wrote the language best. <laughs> yeah, our time is nearly up, so I, I would like to ask, given the, the various possible um, you know, directions in which one could take this, what are your own personal research priorities going forward? Well, as I said, I'm very, very interested in. in in the needs of, of particularly adult learners, I, I really think that, that where there's a, such a big gap um, now between the fluent speakers and and anyone coming up, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of people assume that language revitalisation means teaching it in schools. I think yes, that may well be necessary, but if you haven't got anyone who's competent, both linguistically and in terms of, of teach training to actually teach those languages in schools, then you're not going to get very far that way. So really getting an adult, particularly young adult cohort of, of good speakers is really important. I'm looking for funding to actually develop a language course for Genesee in particular, but I'm also interested in making links with people in other places, um, New Zealand in particular, North America, uh, there are a few of them around the world who are, who are looking at, at, this, at this kind of, you know, at, at the motivations of, of, of learners of, of very small, highly endangered, what is now called post-vernacular languages, um, languages that are no longer used in, 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 in society in general. Yeah, how to use those research findings because I think, you know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an engaged researcher and, and the big thing in research in this country nowadays is impact, not just impact in, in the academic community, but impact outside academia. And I see this is very useful impact in terms of, of trying to help revive endangered languages. Indeed, and uh, a very worthy because I hope that the uh, hope we'll be hearing a lot more about these topics in the future. Uh-huh. Now, let me say, uh, Julia Sullivan, thank you very much for your time. Okay, well, thank you very much for yeah, if you're interested in the book and for reading it so thoroughly. I've been talking to Julia Sullivan about attitudes to endangered languages. This is Chris Cummins from New Books and Language saying thank you for listening.